You know, there's a lot of things that I'm glad that I grew out of. Um, wearing diapers is the top of the list. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in that boat anymore. Uh, the inability to feed myself, uh, I'm glad I, can, I now can, can control that, although maybe I control it a little too much is, is the problem. Um, my deep and obsessive love for everything Power Rangers, if you remember, I, I did have a moment of years in my life um, where, and it's not gone completely, it's not gone completely, but it's, it's died down a little bit. I don't fit in my costume anymore, and so, you know, just with that, it's, it's fine. Then there's those other things that I probably should have grown out of that I haven't, and if you know me at all, I'm sure you can name at least three things right now that you're like, yeah, he probably should have grown out of that, but he didn't. Um, the joy of lifting myself onto handlebars when I'm pushing a cart down the parking lot to my van, right? Guys, don't you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, especially when you don't have kids with you, because if you have kids with you, it's a bad example. But if you don't have kids with you, then it's completely okay, right? And so just one good kick and lift yourself and just fly, kind of like you're on the Titanic, you know, that like wind in your hair type of feel. Um, yeah, I never really grew out of that. Um, my want to decide probably significant decisions with a rousing game of rock, paper, scissors. I mean, I feel like if it worked as kids, why can't it work now? You know, like, hey, let's just rock, paper, scissors this out, you know, and, and we'll see who emerges victorious. Um, and then the other big thing is I still want to eat a bowl of cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? Like, it just never sounds unappealing to me. My wife buys the healthy cereal, though, and that kind of put the kibosh on that. But if there's a, if there's a box of Fruity Pebbles in my pantry, it's mine. Like, it's not for my kids. Like, they know that's dad's cereal. If it looks colorful, it's for dad. Like, they just, they just know that. There's another thing that I wish I grew out of. We actually have a term for it uh, in our house. But it's what we call the, the, the peeve, the peeve over uh, unnecessary things ability. It's my pout ability, um, if, you've, if you've been there. I'm really good at pouting. I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, I turned 30, and there's a big difference between my wife and I that when I, um, when it's her birthday, she's like, yeah, I would, I would love like some flowers or it just sleep in till like eight o'clock. And I'm like, babe, I got you. Like, that's no problem. And then she's like, what do you want for your birthday? And I'm like, I want some new furniture. <laughs> you know, I'm like, let's just go spend a couple grand and and get some, get some furniture. Uh, so she finally gave in to me when I turned 30, and, and we went and we, we picked out some furniture uh, for an area of our basement um, that I hide from my children in. And we, we picked out the furniture, and remember, I am the instant gratification generation. And so shopping for furniture is extremely frustrating for me when I go and I'm like, okay, this is what I want, and I talk to the salesperson, and they're like, okay, we'll have it delivered to you in like four to 122 weeks. Like, what do you, you can't, like, just take it there right now? Like, we can't just load this sucker up? I mean, it's right here. I've, I sat on it. Like, we can't just take this one and, and go. So anyway, so they're like, all right, four to six weeks, and, and we'll take it. And so, you know, I'm, like, agonizing this whole time, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? When that prime package doesn't get there in, well, now it's like if it doesn't get there in a day, we freak out. If it's any more than two days, we cancel the order. Like, we're just done, right? <laughs> 
And so I'm waiting, and I'm like, okay. And so finally it comes, and I'm so excited. Like, I took off work to be there to receive this package, right? So these guys, they, they bring it in, uh, bring it into my basement, and it's all boxed up, and they're unwrapping it, and they're putting it all together, uh, and they're like, all right, it's done. You want to come see it? I'm like, yeah, let's come see it. And they're like, well, we got to tell you one thing. I'm like, okay, what is it? Like, well, your, your chair that you bought, it doesn't, we didn't have, like, the feet that go on the bottom of it. And I'm like, come again? You don't have the feet? Now, I need to preface this with, this in no way compromised the integrity to sit on the chair, okay? It wasn't that kind of chair. These are the kind of feet that just raise it off the ground about two inches, okay? But I choose this moment to activate all pout ability. And so I'm talking to these guys. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have the feet? Like, how, how does that even happen? They're like, well, it probably got left on the truck. And I'm like, and I said, I was like, well, can you go get it? And they're like, well, no, that truck's in Illinois by now. And I'm like, I can give you a map if you want. Like, I'll tell you where it is. And so they're like, well, hey, you know, we'll figure it out, uh, but it'll probably take two to three weeks to, to get this feet. And I'm like, come again? Now, keep in mind, I can still enjoy all of the comfort of the chair. But it's going to drive me crazy that the ottoman that came with the chair that has the feet is about one inch taller than the chair of which I sit. So in my mind, I'm sitting like this. The next day, no joke, this is, this is not a joke at all. The next day, I drive to the furniture store. I go to the, the customer service and I say, listen, I ordered this chair. They have no feet. I'm like, oh, yeah, we have a note in here. We've got, we've got it on order. It'll be here in about two to three weeks. I said, no, no. That chair over there has the feet. So you go ahead and you walk and get yourself a good old Phillips screwdriver and let's get those feet off of this chair. Now, I wish that I could say that she was like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, but she was not having any part of my plan. So for the next three weeks, I hated that furniture. I didn't like to look at it. I didn't like to go down there. It drove me crazy because I'm like, how is this not complete? I'm really, really good at pouting over unnecessary things. We've been on this journey through the life and the story of Jonah, and one of the things that has intrigued me as I've read through this book is it's a story where nothing acts the way that it should. Everything kind of acts in the opposite manner, right? You have a prophet that runs from God. You have these pagan sailors who repent and turn to God. You have people, as we looked last week, that survive being eaten by fish. You have this last chapter that there's going to be two more things that, that kind of are abnormal. So it's just this book of like all these opposite things. And so just a reminder of kind of where we're at at the end of chapter 3. Jonah arrives in Nineveh and he preaches this simple message. He says this, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't talk anything about God's goodness. He doesn't talk anything about the opportunity to repent. Remember, this is a story of where nothing acts like it should. And after Jonah's message in this surprising twist, this ruthless nation, this Assyrian capital of Nineveh, led by this extremely evil king, repents. 
And they call out to God for their salvation. Let's just recap very quickly at the end of chapter 3, verse 10. It says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not. So yes, this is a story of things not acting the way that it should, but it's also a story of God acting exactly how God is. That even the most ruthless, violent nation who turns to repentance, God spares them. He relents. And it's interesting, if you look through this four-chapter story, you would think that this is kind of the climactic part of the story. That this is kind of what everything is leading up to. That, that Jonah was called to preach a message. He finally gets there. He preaches this message. The Assyrians repent. And then you would think, okay, game over, the, the end of the story. And if the book had ended there, at verse 10 of chapter 3, then we would probably think of Jonah a little bit differently than we currently do, right? He was a guy who he had some struggles for sure, but he eventually got there, right? He eventually got it. He had this life-transforming experience in a fish, which none of us can say, right? And God confronted him, and, and he met God there, and he became obedient, and this nation was saved because of God's great mercy. But the book continues, and we get to chapter 4, which for me is this pinnacle moment of the story. This is the climax of the book of Jonah, where we really now get some insight into the true heart of Jonah. And so Jonah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, after seeing the repentance of the Ninevites, after seeing God relent, says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. If you remember from last week, Aaron Embry, one of our elders, did an amazing sermon on chapters 2 and 3. If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But he, he brought out that another way that you can look at this is that it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That what God was doing, or rather uh, what God held back, was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and this isn't the response that we would expect from a prophet of God, right? This isn't something that we normally see, and, and so it begs the question, did Jonah really feel like evil people deserve God's judgment even after genuine repentance? Did he really believe in this idea of strict judgment that requires evil people to suffer? Maybe the question gets a little bit deeper. Was he really struggling? Did, did he really struggle to believe in a God who gives ju judgment when he wants, but also the same God who can give mercy when he wants? But if you remember, we've said a couple times through this series, this is not a story about Jonah. It's not a story about Nineveh. This is a story about God's people who have lost their way. And so the question then becomes, church, what do you believe? What do you believe? Jonah's struggle continues here in chapter 4, and, and he begins to, to pray, albeit short, this pretty angry prayer. I mean, it's, it's 
like we have a hard time grasping, but Jonah is fuming in this moment. And so he, he prays this angry prayer, and, and what a little bit blows my mind in this is that while he's about to enter this angry conversation with God, Nineveh is in an active state of repentance that we'll see in just a second that Jonah goes up on a hillside. He's overlooking the city, and, and as he sees, as he overlooks, what he's seeing is he's seeing people repent and turn to God, and he's fuming about it. He's incredibly angry about what's going on to the point where as they're mourning their evil doing, Jonah is mourning the mercy of God. And here's what he says, Jonah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This is his prayer. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Let those words sink in for just a second, because this is really getting to the heart of where Jonah is, that he would rather die than see the mercy of God being poured out on Nineveh. But let me also say this, because I, I have found comfort in this throughout this story. I'm really glad that God listens to our angry prayers. I'm really glad that we serve a God who invites us to come with our raw, unfiltered emotions and who meets us where we're at. But Jonah's having, he's having these, uh, one of these I told you so moments with God where he's saying, see, see, I told you, I told you to, you were too merciful. I told you you were too abounding in love. Just once I wish my wife and I could have an argument like that, <laughs> right? Like where she, I come home and she's mad and she, I'm like, what's the matter? She's like, you just love me too much. <laughs> it has never happened to my surprise, Right? But that's kind of the absurdity of what's happening here is that, that Jonah is just so mad. The mercy, the love, the compassion of God is so anger-inducing to him. Because in his mind, evil people deserve judgment every time, no matter what. And throughout this story, God is, has audibly spoke to Jonah twice so far. And both times, he said the same thing. He said in chapter 1, he says, go to Nineveh. Then he says it right after Jonah gets vomited out of the fish where God says, hey, go to Nineveh. Right? And so there's these, these two times that God speaks, and he says the same thing. But now he's about to speak again, and it's completely different. God interjects in verse 4, and he says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? See, it's interesting here because the first two times that God speaks to Jonah, he's talking to him uh, for kind of this external reason. I need you to go and preach to Jonah. All the while, he's really getting at what's at the heart of Jonah. And what I love about this verse in chapter 4 is now he speaks directly to the heart of Jonah. 
That it's no longer this explicit question, but now it's very implicit. Do you do well to be angry? And I said a few weeks ago, um, but I think the story of Jonah is one that we've, we've kind of muddied up a little bit. We've kind of confused ourselves in the story a little bit. At least I have, because I think for a long time I thought, you know, Jonah and God are just completely at odds the entire time. Like they're just buttonheads the entire time. But if you look closely at the story, that's not really what's happening. That there's actually several parts where Jonah and God agree. Let's look at a couple. Jonah agrees that Nineveh is evil. God also agrees. God says, yes, they are wicked. And to make it even, even more so, the king of Nineveh says, yeah, you guys are right. We're evil, right? So there's agreement there. They both agree that God can save, right? I mean, God, it's, it's his character. It's who he is. It's what he does. Jonah, the end of his prayer, chapter 2, is what? Yahweh. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, right? Yahweh saves. God saves. So they agree that salvation belongs to the Lord, And then the last part, which is interesting, is that they both agree that God's nature is gracious and merciful. I mean, Jonah says it right here in chapter 4. He says, I knew that you were gracious and merciful. I knew that's who you were. So that got me thinking, where then does this disagreement happen? Where, Where does the friction really begin? Because it's not a theology problem for Jonah. Jonah doesn't have this this thinking of God problem. He understands the character. He knows the character and the nature of God. But I think the problem that he's facing is a problem that many of us also face, probably more often than we realize, that there are times where our theological agreement, what we believe in our minds about God, doesn't agree with what our hearts want to believe about God. There are times where in my head, not having the one-inch feet to a chair isn't a big deal, but man, my heart says it is. And so in this moment, Jonah is having this theological and heart disagreement that he can believe that salvation belongs to the Lord, but he can still be angry about it. Let me say it this way. Church, at times, I think our biggest struggle that we face is not do we believe that God is who he says he is. Most of the time, our biggest struggle is are we okay with that? Our biggest struggle that we face is not do we believe that God is who he says he is. We can believe and we can read and we can do Bible studies on the grace and mercy of God. But are we okay with that? Are we okay that God is gracious, merciful, abounding in love, slow to anger? So God confronts Jonah with this question, are you really angry that I am who I claim that I am? That I'm not just some good idea, I'm not just some nice thought, but I am the Lord your God? And Jonah doesn't answer. Rather, 
He's going to continue to pout, which happens to me all the time, right? My wife's like, hey, you really, you really going to make this a big deal? I'm like, yes, I am, because I'm good at it, right? So Jonah's going to continue, and he leaves the city, and he goes and he sits on a hillside, and he's overlooking the city. And the reason that he does that is mostly because he still hasn't given up the possibility that God is going to rain down judgment on this city. He's still hoping that God is going to follow through with his judgment and not relent in his mercy. We have another phrase in our house that I'm sure is similar in a lot of houses, but when one of our kids decides to pout about something, my initial response is, if you're going to pout, go to your room. Anybody else? Okay, cool. There's like three of us that we're, we're in this together, right? Now, let's think about why I say this. I like to believe that because there's some valuable lesson that I'm hoping that my kids are going to learn in the sanctuary of their room, right? Like that is where the abounding of knowledge will take place. And that eventually they will emerge with a joyful song in their heart and a beaming smile on their face. And it will have done its job. Just once I'd like that to happen, right? But that's not why I do it. Let's be honest. The reason that those words come out of my mouth is because, hey, you can pout, but I don't want to be around it. I, I, don't, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Go to your room and fix it, right? But what I love about what happens next is that that's not the attitude that God has toward Jonah. He doesn't leave him sitting on the hillside. He doesn't leave him in his sulking, in his pouting. He comes to him in another extremely bizarre way. Picking up in verse 6 says this, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah, surprisingly, was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now notice this is the first time in the whole story that we've seen a positive attitude in Jonah. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And again, he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now, what's interesting here, and there's a lot that we can pull out of this, but what's interesting here is that God asks the same question that he asked just a few verses ago, but he makes one slight addition to it. The first time he just says, do you do well to be angry? What he's implying is, are you really angry about who I am, about my nature, about my character? But now he's going to change it, and he says, do you do well to be angry about the plant? Let's bring it down. To, to kind of ground level here, let's talk about the, the, the tangibles for a second. Do you do well? Are you right to be angry about the plant? And this time, Jonah can't hold his tongue anymore. And he answers. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. 
Now, I've had some super frustrating horticultural experiences. I've planted plants that didn't work out. I got herbs dying on my counter right now, as a matter of fact. But I've never been so angry to the point of death. And so you've got to think, okay, Jonah, this isn't about the plant, is it? Right? But I think this is that moment where Jonah's emotional floodgates just burst open. And everything that he's wanted to say, he finally says, and he can't hold in his anger anymore. And he says, God, I am so angry. I am so angry about who you are. I am so angry about what you're doing that I just don't even want to see it anymore. I'm angry enough to die. And he sits on this hillside. And I think one of the problems is his whole idea of entitlement is shattered. That for maybe the first time, he is seeing that God is not just for him. But that God is a God of all. That this loving, merciful God doesn't just work for his good and for his benefit, that Jonah is not entitled to the mercy of God any more or any less than the repenting Assyrians down at the bottom of the hill are. That God's character really is gracious and merciful. And it, and, and it begs the question then for you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with a God who's not just for you? but is also for those that might oppose you, for those that might hurt you, for those that might judge you. A few years ago, back in 2017, May 18th was the day. It was a Thursday. It was one of the darkest moments of, of my life. And my, my sister called me, it was, it was early in the day, and, and, and she called me, and I knew, it was one of those conversations where I knew before she even said a word, I knew what she was about to say, but she had called me to tell me that my dad had passed away. And now, many of you know this, I've, I've shared the story, I'm very open about, about my family history, but, but me and my dad did not, uh, we had a complicated relationship. And kind of the root of it was my dad was, was not a believer. He was a very strong uh, atheist. And, and so when I started following Jesus toward the end of high school, it created a very big gap in our relationship that unfortunately just continued to widen over the years. And it got to the place where him and I didn't talk for over, over 10 years. And... My sister called me the Monday before, and she said, hey, um, dad's been diagnosed with cancer. He has lung cancer. The doctors have given him three to six months, and he asked for you to come see him. And keep in mind, her second phone call was four days later. And now in that moment, that whole week, I was calling people, I was calling mentors, I was talking to my wife and saying, hey, I just, I want you to pray for this interaction that my dad and I are about to have. I'm really praying that this is the moment. This is the moment that I can, I can just, I can show him the gospel. 
that I can just tell him about the love of Jesus and that him and I can experience restoration through the Holy Spirit. And I prayed fervently, harder than I believe I've ever prayed for anything in my entire life. When my sister called me on that Thursday, everything within me burst out. And I'm, I'm not typically a, I don't know, I, I don't consider myself like a, a hugely emotional guy, but I sat on my bathroom floor and screamed. And I'm not talking metaphorical, I'm talking literally screaming at God. And I sat there and as all of these thoughts and emotions and words just came pouring out of my mouth, I found myself screaming things like, you're supposed to be good. You're supposed to love me. You're supposed to care. And I got to the point, and, and I'll admit, most of the days following, the weeks following, are very much a blur. Because it was at that point where I started wrestling with this question, is this God one that I want to follow? Is what I know about him in agreement with what my heart feels? And can I say, standing here almost five years since, that I'm really glad that God meets us where we're at. That I'm really glad we have a God that listens to our angry prayers. Because, friends, I will tell you, in the months and years since then, God showed up for me. And after a ton of support, after so many solid friends, after hours of counseling, God transformed my heart to agree with what my mind believed. But I want to press on you today. I want you to think for yourself that when we come to terms with the truth that God does not owe us anything but judgment, that's all we're deserving of. All we deserve is God's judgment. But when we believe that, it allows us to truly feel in our hearts what we believe in our minds about his mercy and his grace. That as painful as that experience was for me and as painful as those experiences in your life are and that there are still wounds that we all struggle with that still are healing, if we say that God is good, if we say that God grieves with those who grieve, then we, church, must allow ourselves to be comforted by his presence in our grief. And don't mishear this. This is not a suck-it-up buttercup mentality. That's not what God is about. 
It's quite the opposite, really. It's God confronting us on our hillside and saying, lay down your entitlement. Open up your hands and allow me to enter into your mess and show you that I am who I say that I am. To show you the same compassion, the same grace, the same mercy as I've shown to them. This book ends with a cliffhanger question, if you can believe it. Super frustrated to me. I don't like it. It's kind of like, you know, when Avengers Part 1 ended and you had to wait. That's how I think of it. I don't know. But chapter 11, the last, or verse 11, the last verse of the book, God says this. After the whole plant thing, he says, And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Not quite the mic drop moment that maybe you were expecting, but but I got to admit, when I first was reading through that book, at times the ending frustrated me, at times it was comical to me, but then the impact of it really hit me. That this is a question, church, designed in such a way for us to answer. Designed for us to write the final verse, the final paragraph. That if God cares about those who don't know what their right hand from their left is doing, who, who don't know God, who are far from God, if God cares about them, and if God even cares about the cattle, then the question, church, designed for us to answer is don't we then believe that God cares about us? To enter into the reality of Jonah in this story means coming to grips with the truth that we are Jonah. We are not better than him. We are him. To the one who feels that you are owed a successful career, do you believe in God's goodness even when it doesn't go as you planned? To the one who feels like you were owed 50 years of a healthy marriage, do you believe in God's sovereignty when things didn't work out that way? To the one who feels that they don't deserve whatever struggles life is throwing at you, do you believe that God is abounding in love for you? And to the ones who feel like the enemies around us deserve punishment and pain, are you okay that God is rich in mercy and gracious to those who turn to him? I want to end with this. In 1772, a man sat down and, and he decided he was going to reflect on the grace that God had shown him in his life. He was trying to find words to put to this powerful thing that he experienced, and as he's sitting there, and as he's, as he's thinking about everything that God has shown him, as he realized that the mercy and the grace of God was so amazing that it wasn't owed to him, but it was poured out. It was the outflow of the love of God to those who cry out 
to him. He tried to find how to describe it. And the only words that John Newton could find were the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Church, I pray that we would all ask ourselves the same question as Jonah did. Are we okay with a merciful and gracious God? Let's pray. God, your, your goodness is unfathomable. Your mercy is overwhelming. God, your love for us is indescribable. God, I pray for us, even right now where we sit, God, that we would just reflect on the love and the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us, that even in moments, in our darkest moments, God, where we felt like we had no idea what you were doing, or if you were good, God, I pray that you would remind us, God, that you care. God, that even though the pain and the struggles of this world are a reality, God, that your mission is to redeem and restore what is broken. God, to lead us into a kingdom where there is no mourning, there is no pain, there is no tears, no sickness, but where we get to stand in the presence of a good God who pours out his love. Amazing grace. How can it be? In Jesus' name, amen.